The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Yeah! Uh, we have a special special trucker on the show, I guess. Well, I drive a truck! <laughs> my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. Uh, people call me Whitney Seibold. I'm a, a gadfly man about town. And with me, as always, is my scintillating, intelligent, and unbelievably great co-host. Introduce yourself, William. Thanks, man. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing a few films. A couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Sometimes we don't want to review a lot of films. <laughs> Sometimes we yeah. only get a chance to review a couple. Sometimes you're like, you're like applications to watch things on streaming services because that's how we do things now. Don't work for a week and you can only watch one new film. Sometimes that happens. Something like that happened this week, William. Look, I'm not going to say I had a problem with, um, oh, I don't want to name like a real one. I'll just say like Disney Plus. Like sometimes they just don't work. Disney Plus? That's a thing? Yeah. No, no, I didn't name a real one. Oh, okay. I love that they're all plus now. Yeah, they just stopped giving it. They gave up on having their own names. Like CBS was CBS All Access, but that was a little too confusing. So now they're Mm -hmm. just switching over to Paramount Plus. I think it's interesting that like that's so generic that like you can't even like copyright that. Yeah, anyone can just call themselves whatever they want. Plus, uh, we could do critically acclaimed. Plus, I was about to say, welcome to critically acclaimed. I can't even say it. Critically acclaimed plus. Welcome to critically acclaimed plus, where it's exactly the same except there are commercials. Weenie burgers are so much fun to eat. If you look real hard, you, you might, might even, even find, find the meat. That was from Tiny Toon Adventures. Tiny Toon Adventures is one of the best TV shows ever made. Mm, it's pretty good. But we're not talking about Tiny Toon Adventures, yeah. although we probably could talk ad nauseum about Tiny Toon Adventures. Why isn't uh, Babs Bunny appreciated as one of the greatest like cartoon characters ever? Why isn't she, that? She that's, should that's, be. Ba- that's Babs, crap. Babs and yeah. Buster were very influential on my my. Youth. Buster is okay. Babs was a lightning rod. Like there's nothing <laughs> like Babs on TV. Babs was amazing. Someone bring back Babs. If only Babs. Like I don't well, need the other ones. We do have uh somebody who is about Babs Bunny's age going on plucky adventures in one of our movies tonight. Oh, that's a fun that's a fun segue you did there. Quite yeah, welcome. This, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing the new releases Enola Holmes, The Swerve. And the artist's wife. And on the streaming club, where we are reviewing films that one or both of us never got around to. Uh, They're often big famous films or cult films. And uh, yeah, we're taking this opportunity to catch up on some stuff since there's less stuff in theaters. Uh, We're going to be talking about the 1944 Oscar winning classic Gaslight. Which Uh, is available on the Roku channel. Yeah, we thought we'd try that one out. What the heck? It worked Uh, fine. Yeah, Roku is uh, pretty reliable. They're uh, 
Okay, so if if we're going to go down the line as to which streaming services look like what video stores we are used to visiting, mm-hmm. uh, the Roku channel is like something that's also a gas station. Like they yeah. have... Or a, or a liquor store that like actually just has a lot of like porno movies with no boxes in the back mm-hmm. and a few up front to sort of maintain a veneer of legitimacy. Yeah, I remember those stores. Uh, yeah, um, that's that's. I the was the only person channel. who actually like got the real movies. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, because yeah, oftentimes they we didn't know what ra- they had and they like, had like rare stuff. Yeah, like Red Hot Video. Uh, it was like two thirds porn. <laughs> I and remember was, Red Hot. Oh yeah, video. and then there was then like a, a on quarter, Lincoln? A quarter yeah. of the store. Though, I mean, there were a couple around town, okay. but yeah, there was one on Lincoln and. Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, yeah, like about a quarter of the store had just like these sun bleached VHS that nobody looked at because they're yeah. there for the porn. Yeah. Uh, but so, let me tell you something. You can find some weird out of print stuff in the oh, yeah, actual find, legitimate like, video site because no one's looked at that in forever. They've mm-hmm. never like considered like <laughs> ask for a real movie there. They'll be like, oh, I guess we have that somewhere. So that's that's the Roku channel. It, like yeah. there's a few classics in there. It's mostly mm-hmm. just a lot of dead weight and some really obscure stuff. No porn on the Roku channel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Roku. It's just that quarter quarter yeah. of the porno store. Like a couple of reasonably big titles, yeah. a couple of classics, a couple of weird so, yeah, ones, if, and then we're kind of done really you, you, it's you not that many through, films you, you comb through and you might there's a few classics hiding in there and we found yeah. gaslight on the yeah. roku channel and that was uh, selected by our patrons as the mm. streaming club film is every week so we will talk about gaslight a little later in the show but let's get started with what i think is fair to say is the biggest release of the week it is a new action adventure for young adults called Enola Holmes, starring Millie Bobby Brown from the series Stranger Things as Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes's younger sister. That's right. Sherlock Holmes and Mycroft Holmes have a teenage sister who has been raised in uh, the Holmes estate Mm. with uh, their single mom, who in the movie is played by Helena Bonham Carter. Mm. And she has been learning the ways of the world through books and through uh, her plucky mom, who is determined to have her be a very educated young woman. And of course, uh, her plucky mom is, like everyone else in the Holmes family, incredibly bright. So Mm. is Enola Holmes. Uh, They are very well educated, but Enola Holmes has been sheltered. She has not... It's not that she's not adventurous or exciting or impassioned. She just hasn't actually been out in the world very often. So when her mother goes missing at the beginning, of the film and then her brothers uh, played by uh, Henry Cavill Henry Cavill plays Sherlock Holmes and Sam Claflin plays Mycroft Holmes Sherlock's older brother and Sam Claflin is younger than Henry Cavill which I find endlessly distracting. They, they should have played the, each other's roles. Why not? Who cares? <laughs> it's fine. I know Henry Cavill is like the more of like the movie star mm. of the two but listen either get someone older or like Switch them up. Who cares? Like, it's fine. In, in this version of things, Mycroft Holmes is is really laced up and really kind of pewy and Well, that's, 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 that, that's often the case, I think, in a lot of interpretations. Oh, I, th- I thought he was kind of like a, a little bit more buffoonish. And, in no, the never, in my experience, he's not really buffoonish as mm. much as he is, I mean, he's stuffy. He's very mm. conservative. Uh, but, um, yeah, he kind of just represents like the establishment and Holmes is a little outside of that. And what they discover is they, uh, well, they don't, they don't interact with Enola all that much, but as we compare and contrast their lives, um, we actually see, and this is one of the things I think the movie does really well, um, just how incredibly privileged they are and how they live in a world where they can just focus on their mysteries and their day jobs and not think about things like the fact that, in turn of the century, England, a ton of people had no say in the government and had their rights 
you know, bestowed upon them at the will of people who might not have their best interests at heart. As we learn very quickly when Mycroft and Sherlock return to the family estate after the mother goes missing, and Mycroft, being the eldest, it's his estate, he is, inherits it, and ergo his sister is now his ward, uh, insists that, oh, well, you need to learn to become a proper lady so we can marry you off because that's all that is expected of you in society. And Noel Holmes wants none of that, and so she runs away to try to find her mother. And that's the basic setup of the plot. Problem is, there's another movie in there as well, in which she meets, like, a, a absconded Viscount on a train who's got, like, Burn Gorman from Torchwood and Pacific Rim, like, out to kill him for mysterious reasons. And, and will this have anything to do with the mom plot? Not really. And and, and he's he's uh, just in Ola's age, and boy, howdy, is he a snack. So, of course, they're going <laughs> to fall in love. He, he's got, he's like, bop. Uh, oh, yeah. Teeny bopper kind of cover he, model he, boy. He's uh, got that like Robert Downey Jr. in the early 90s kind of hair that sort mm-hmm. of a ho ho. Yeah. That, his hair says ho ho. So at first, Enola Holmes will have nothing to do with this boy, but of course, they're very intensely attracted to each other. So there's a little bit of romantic tension. Mm. But uh, they're kids, so it doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. And in fact, the entire tone of Enola Holmes is reminiscent of a, even though the books came out like in the mid 2000s after the whole wave of. Uh, Harry Potter and Twilight kind of changed uh, young adult fiction pretty much forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was either chosen ones on a magical quest or supernatural romance. Or like, uh, or or uh, sci-fi heroes taking down the government. Uh, like sci-fi th- teams taking down the government. Hunger Games, Divergent. So yeah, th- those were like the three attack points for all of YA fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not Holmes, to say that's all there is, but those are the, those are the big it, three, indeed, aren't they? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, this is reminiscent of the kinds of adventure books I used to read. Mm. That is plucky young kids away from adults getting in sort of mischief or adventures, but not in a way that's sort of shaking the world or is really life threatening. Mm. Uh, it's really just sort of, uh, about gentle, intelligent people, uh, growing into adulthood, figuring out the world on their own terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll notice a lot of YA fiction is about kids going on uh, without adults or figuring stuff out without Mm. adults. Or adults are clueless or adults are oppressive Mm. in some way. Mm. And the... Usually they're just not paying attention. And the childlike adventures are some means of establishing independence Mm. or... Uh, even proving Mm. that you are better than your adults who consider themselves your superiors. Uh, That's a good fantasy. It works. It's a fine fantasy, and I appreciate Enola Holmes as sort of a a hero for a young girl that might be watching this. Yeah. Or or a young boy. Uh, Just that she, her intelligence is the thing that's celebrated, Mm. and her courage is the thing that's celebrated, and there's not a lot of, and... Young girl or boy or anyone else. There's a a spy story, and there's, like, people with guns, and there's bad guys chasing after them who might want to do them harm, but more than anything, it's just about her her pluck and her good humor saving her at the end of the day. I think Millie Bobby Brown is really good in this. Mm. Um, She's... Very witty. She's mm. very energetic, but not in that sort of I'm desperate to entertain you kind of way. She's just yeah. giving the movie all of her energy all the time, which is good. You want that from a from a hero. You want someone who is um, uh, funny and spirited and constantly figuring things out and just thoroughly engaged in the proceedings because it's easier for you to be engaged through them. Uh, this movie employs a fourth wall breaking dynamic 
so constantly it plays like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but with Sherlock Holmes's sister. Right. She is constantly, constantly turning to the camera in the middle of conversations, going, huh? And there's yeah, there's a bit where it looks like she's she's a bit the big one, and then she winks it like right at the camera uh-huh. to let us know. Uh, there's a bit where they're lost without a clue of what to do, and she turns to the camera and just says. I'm at a loss. What would you do? Yeah. To the audience. Yeah. And a part of me is just like, you know, you're not going to take my advice in Nola Holmes. Like, <laughs> I know where this is going. I think I figured it out already. I could, I could tell, could I tell you? Also, you're smarter than me and more capable. Yeah. You, you, you could get out of this better. Like I, I have, I have the luxury of like knowing story structure and knowing that you're in a fictional narrative and having a general sense of where <laughs> this is going. But other than that, you're right. You are smarter than me. So, eh. Um, and this is fun. I think uh, the director of this movie directed like some episodes of Fleabag, which I, I, I actually haven't seen. I heard it's really good, but I understand it deployed that mechanic. He's done a lot of, uh, of British television. Yeah. Won a lot of awards for British TV. His um, name is uh, Harry Bradbeer. And uh, the thing is, though, is, as engaging as that is, it actually becomes uh, something the film relies on so much. The film relies so much on breaking the fourth wall and... Not just establishing Enola's past and her education with her mother and how, like, learning self-defense and botany and all these other things have prepared her for this big adventure. But they're constantly intercutting between those things so much that it feels like you're getting twice as much movie. Mm-hmm. And, A, I think that actually makes the film feel kind of bloated and it it lacks direction too often because mm-hmm. it's constantly calling back in on itself, even when it's already done so. Yeah. Like, we've already established in a really recent scene that Enola learned, mar- uh, like, martial arts from her mother and a few other people, like, at her estate. Mm-hmm. And now when she's fighting Byrne Gorman, we're cutting right back to that same martial arts fight with her mom. We literally just saw less than five minutes ago you're not making a new point here. You're actually just padding it in well, a way that frankly a, hurts the, hurts the, the, the drive of the film. The, this feels like a, a real, it's a really energetic film. I think yeah. it's very propulsive, uh, but I do agree with you. I think there's a, a, a little bit too much of it and yeah. there's either a way to, this feels like a compromise cut. Yeah. Like that the filmmaker made like a three hour film and they had to sort of streamline it as best they could into what we got. Mm. And they could either keep on cutting to the point where it's not as comprehensible, but might move a little bit better mm-hmm. or they, but they left in all of the plot points. And as such, yeah, it feels like a, like a jumble of two Enola Holmes books trying to coexist. I agree. It does feel like two stories mm-hmm. fighting each other. It's interesting that you say it feels like a longer movie that cut mm-hmm. down. For me, this feels like a really great pilot episode for an Enola Holmes series mm-hmm. with an extra hour of stuff we don't need. A, a whole second mystery. Yeah, um, basically. And and rather than just being like one episode than another, they're just sort of awkwardly like like shoveled on top of one another, mm-hmm. like folded like a not very good burrito. You know, just like, it's like, you know, like when you're making a burrito before you've learned how to fold them right and they're just sort of flopping them around. And then finally it's like, look, it's in the tortilla. I'm just going to eat it. Like, I know it doesn't look right. <laughs> it's still food. You fold in front of you, left and right, then the, then the way. I, the I understand it. that now, but tell that to 14 year old Bibbs. He didn't know. Just sort of roll it up after a while. Exactly. Just like, eh, whatever. But like, yeah, it's and as a result, the movie feels simultaneously a little insubstantial because I feel like a lot of the storylines don't actually come to a meaningful resolution mm. and also extremely padded. And it's frustrating because I like a lot of the individual elements, mm. but there are things that don't come together. One of the storylines, I'm not going to tell you which one because 
I'm not going to, I don't want to ruin it. One of the storylines that was driving the film, and there's like three main storylines slash mysteries. Mm-hmm. Nothing comes of it. Like nothing. Like there's actually a scene at the end that wraps it up. Nothing got solved. Mm-hmm. Nothing got explained. Didn't go anywhere really. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like, it's, it's, I don't know. It would be like if I, you know, like in the in Ronin, how they're all they're trying to get that uh, that one weird case. It's like an ice skates case, and you don't know what's in it. You just know it's super important and worth dying over. It would be like at the end of that, they opened the case, and it was like, oh yeah, it it was a it was a compact disc. Well, that doesn't explain shit. Why even put that in there? That's kind of what the ending for this yeah, is like. It's like we wrapped it up. No, you literally didn't. You didn't answer any of my questions about it, and you seem to think this is fine. That's very frustrating. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of films like, uh, and this is a, a common complaint you and I have both had about a lot of modern blockbusters that they're they're really overwritten. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm reminded of something like Pirates of the Caribbean, which is oh. too much of a movie in a movie. Fun to watch, the but too much of it. Okay, the sequels, on the other hand, are especially well, loaded. Yeah, the, the first one was overwritten, and I think yeah. the the makers of the sequels thought that's what audiences want. Wanted, so they just made them all the like more bloated and contrived as they went along. I I agree. Uh, I think that they leaned too far in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the first uh, one basically uh, works though. Yeah, or, or one of the Fast and Furious movies. It's like you're here for two and a half hours. We're gonna make sure, damn well, sure you're entertained. So yeah, here's a no cli- one's gonna complain. You're not getting your money. Here, here's a climax, yeah. but this is a third of the way th- through the movie. Yeah, you just hang onto your seat, fucker. <laughs> We're gonna jump cars through hoops and set set Michelle Rodriguez on fire and have her beat yeah. up another Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah, and there's two Michelle Rodriguez's now. I don't them, know. And one of them is a car. And <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I feel like this is sort of a give them their money's worth mm. kind of thinking. We're gonna put in a lot of Enola Holmes because we want to see her do a lot. We might not get another chance. Yeah. Uh, instead of that, make a, a streamlined little bit more. I, I, I'm not asking to, for something to make a, boring to make a, a or simple. I just think it's... Well, it's, it's so, yeah. well, I mean, still, a plucky adventure can be intimate. Look at Nancy Drew. Did you mm. see the new Nancy Drew film? Not, I didn't, actually. I heard it was the, good. Or I, I guess the latest one I've seen was the one with... Uh, uh, Sophia Emma, Lillis? Uh, no, not with Sophia Lillis. With uh, Emma... Emma Tom, Roberts. Emma Roberts. That was like 10 years ago now. That, yeah, that, okay. that was the last one I saw. I didn't, okay. I didn't see the, the most recent one. But yeah, okay. th- those, are, those are a little bit more intimate mysteries about mm-hmm. things that affect well, the people around her a little bit more intimately. Right. Uh, or I this... think of something like Dora the Explorer, the mm-hmm. movie, which is really fun, full mm-hmm. of, of incident and character and humor and adventure, but it doesn't feel like it's straining against the confines of its running time. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel too short or anything like that. It just feels like it's good like and again i feel like if i saw this i'm gonna i'm I'm recommending this movie don't get me wrong i'm just explaining why i don't think it's all-time classic here but i think if i saw this movie when i was a kid i would really like it and be really forgiving of it because i want to spend more time with these characters i want to see uh enola holmes in particular get in more adventures um there would be things that tick me off i still think the the whole thing i'm complaining about with like the last story element that doesn't really wrap everything up but acts like it does i think that still would have bugged me as a kid but i think it'd be more forgiving about it i think this movie is specifically engineered to appeal to young people who are looking for a smart hero who exists in 
this sort of uh, this oppressive Victorian atmosphere or Edwardian. I actually don't remember what the actual era would be, but um, and is actually straining against that and actually fighting against the oppression of uh, women, but also uh, people of color as well. Um, that's it's highlighted. It is an important part of the storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a really really good scene in which Sherlock Holmes is trying to find his missing sister. And he explains to someone talking about politics that, oh, I don't really follow politics. And they're like, yeah, you can afford not to. You're a, you're a rich white man. The system has set up to protect you. You're not interested in changing it because it would hurt you. Mm. And Sherlock Holmes is like, well, yeah. Like, <laughs> and, which, yeah. And like, it's good that there are kid stories that are addressing this and incorporating it organically into the plot. And... Um, that part is all great. Um, I just think, yeah, it's, it's a film that, you know, there's a, a when we, we did a recent episode of We've Got Mail where someone asked mm. us to think about pacing problems. Like what is pacing problems? What does that even mean? And, um, this is what I'm talking about where it's nothing all that wrong with most of the movie, but the way it plays out is just kind of exhausting and makes you want to like maybe parcel it off over a couple of sittings as opposed to watch this film that feels like three movies in one all at once. Oh, yeah. You know, it just gets a little a little long long yeah. in the tooth. Yeah, that's that's yeah. all that's all completely fair. Yeah. Uh, but you seem I, to like it even more than I did. Uh, well, I, 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 I didn't love it, but I did like it a lot. And yeah. I think I just, because I like the character so much, mm. and I don't mind that I get to see her in a lot of adventures. And I, I think it's reminiscent of a kind of kids entertainment that we don't get a lot of anymore that Mm. is the kind that tries to engage the audience's imagination a little bit Mm. and says to them that intelligence and character are valuable yeah uh i i don't get that a lot from uh sort of the action things that kids are getting a lot of i don't I don't get something like that from Katniss Everdeen, uh. whose whose note is steely determination, and and who for a lot of the films is basically guided around by people with agendas and doesn't yeah, have, yeah. Um, you know, she, and, and she's awesome, kind of, but she doesn't have as much agency as one might often I, like in a young hero. hero so and, yeah, and I understand that's a big theme of the books is that she becomes this figurehead for other people's movements, mm-hmm. but. The movie, maybe it's in the books, but the movies don't really let her break free of that in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah. Um, Enola Holmes does everything herself, yeah. and she is uh, really determined and resourceful and smart. And I liked yeah. watching that kind of a kid I, entertainment. I will say this, although I have reservations about the way that this film played out, and I don't, you know, I don't love it, mm. but. I would like to see a sequel to this. Mm. I think now that you've kind of set everything up and you can like chill out a little bit and not have to, you know, throw in Sherlock and Mycroft all the time, because that's why people might be interested is like, Oh, it's another Sherlock Holmes kind of thing, as opposed to some original story about, Mm. you know, they, they know that that's the appeal. I mean, obviously that's why you get Henry Cavill and something like this. He's a recognizable star. So yeah, make, boom, make, but make like I, lo- I, I could go budget, with less yeah. of them. I could really go with less of make them. Make a, a lower budget, more intimate yeah. story uh, with, and make them 90 minutes. I mean, I like, like a whole series. I like things. the scale of it. I like the way the movie looks. I didn't mind it looking big. I actually wonder like if this would be a good double feature with a movie I haven't revisited in a really long time. 
uh, young Sherlock Holmes. Which George, I, haven't, a, I haven't seen that. You've so, never uh, seen that? Yeah. I think it was a Barry Levinson joint. And um, It's uh, revolutionary in terms of special effects, yeah. but at the time it was incredibly badly reviewed. It would, people were not kind to it. Mm-hmm. I saw it when I was a kid and I really liked it. It was about Sherlock Holmes meeting John Watson as kids at a boarding school. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, the solved mysteries. Holmes, they yeah. solved mysteries at a boarding school and they ended up uh, uh, stopping a... I'm trying to remember exactly how the plot went. There was something involving people who were being poisoned and having hallucinations, and that's where a lot of early CGI came in. Mm. But um, yeah, it ended up it ended up having a bit more of like an Indiana Jones vibe, mm. where they were like trying to stop like a cult, like in uh, Temple of Doom. Uh, I liked it at the time. I'd be curious to see how it plays up against Enola Holmes as a fun double feature for kids. But um, anyway, Enola Holmes, per- uh, good per- stuff in it. Pretty good. Yeah. Good stuff in it. Didn't love it. Good stuff mm. in it. Uh, let's move on. Tell me about yeah. the swerve. The swerve. Um. Oh, go- oh golly, the swerve. Boy, howdy, is this a um, um, bleak film? So the swerve uh, premiered at like film festivals a couple years ago. Um, uh, it's finally making its way to the public on streaming. You can rent it on Amazon. Uh, it stars Azura Sky as a suburban housewife who is completely miserable uh she has two teenage sons who treat her very badly who cuss and who don't listen to her Mm. uh she has a husband who is really kind of passively condescending to her and you know keeps on saying you just need to cheer up without really like asking how she is uh she's constantly wearing this mask of despair and Mm. nobody is bothering to reach out to her and uh you can tell that her life is really cursed early in the film because there's a mouse in her home and nobody will take her seriously about the mouse. Mm. And while she's reaching under a bed, something bites her finger and it might be that mouse. Uh, She's a high school teacher. Her students all hate her. She goes to a family dinner. Her family tells embarrassing stories about her that she is still humiliated by even years after the fact. Right. And uh, she leaves the family gathering, and on the way home, uh, some dickheads start accosting her on the road. She swerves to get around them. She learns the next day that she perhaps ran them off the road and killed them. Whoa. Uh, She uses this opportunity to either snap entirely or start to break herself free. But both of those things are kind of the same in her miserable world. And so she starts trying to traverse just how horrendous her life has become with this mouse haunting her life and everybody not listening to her. It makes a pretty general type of domestic angst seem almost like a supernatural horror phenomenon. Okay. That all of these things in her life kind of amount to a ghostly evil that is always hanging over her. It's about... Well, I mean, that's what a lot of, of horror yeah. movies, like haunted house movies, it's yeah. all about the past, really. It's all about being Well, and, and yeah, something. being something in the suburban home that is yeah. has broken, and that's usually represented in horror movies by a ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, this only feels like a ghost. There's no actual supernatural presence, I think, in this movie. But it sure feels that way, that there's kind of this suicidal uh, feeling of dread that's constantly lurking for her around every corner. Right. Um, Azura Sky gives one of the best performances of the year. Wow. Uh, in, in this role, just sort of 
having to endure all of these really common domestic horrors uh, and bearing it with not a brave face, just bearing it because there's no other choice for her. She's been so worn down that her imagination is sort of gone and she can't really even think of an escape to all of us. And things don't end well for her. And that's all I'm going to say. Uh, it is a wonderfully dour experience and uh, it's yet another film that is really kind of examining the psycho like the inner psychology of darkness and despair yeah. in a very frank way without trying to cover it up with a uh, basic kind of screenwriting. It's, it sounds, it's got like this, I mean, the way you're describing it, I didn't mm. see this one. It, it sounds a little bit like Gothic fiction, like not mm. in terms of like Gothic, like, Ooh, but Gothic like, like in terms of screw kind of stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. like people like alone in castles being depressed and, mm the past coming back to haunt them in creepy ways and maybe they fall in love, but it's doomed yeah. that kind of deal, you know, like a Bronte novel, mm. any of them. Yeah. Um, th does it have that kind of like Gothic vibe or am I just picking up on it wrong? Uh, it, not quite because it's very modern. Uh, well, it's, yeah, but it's, you, can, um, you can do both. I mean, I, I suppose so. It, it reminds me a little bit more of something like the Babadook. Uh, where it's about, an, that's that another, a, yeah, another put up, put upon mom who is, is, uh, completely destroyed by her domestic situation. Although in the Babadook, there is definitely a supernatural element going on. Uh, th this one is a little bit more psychologically real and it's really, really difficult. It's really challenging. It's really heartbreaking. And I just loved it. Wow. Awesome. Oh, yeah. I, damn, I, 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 I missed it. Yeah, any anything anything that sort of takes us through the steps of human misery is going to be kind of on my wavelength, yeah. and and this one really did it for me. So yeah, I really highly recommend it. It's maybe not the kind of best film of the year thing, but it's mm, it's but a it's four very well made. but it's a four star film. Yeah, wow, it's, it's a really good, really, okay. really really good movie. Well, that's a high recommendation. Mm. Is the artist's wife that good? No. Ah! <laughs> The artist, what a pity. the artist's wife is uh, kind of disappointing uh, because it's the type of story we've seen a lot of. Um, there was a movie that came out recently called The Wife, which was about this very same thing. Uh, so Lena Olin plays the artist's wife. Uh, she is married who to... Who is herself an artist. Who, who uh, once had ambitions of being an artist, but put them aside because she was kind of running... Mm. Uh, her husband's business. He is a more famous artist. He has ah. won, won awards and is now a pro an art professor. Uh, he's played by Bruce Dern. And the Bruce Dern character is in the early stages of onset dementia. And he has been a lot more caustic to the people around him. He's grown a lot of privilege and a lot of uh, self-entitlement. And now he's just a dick. Ah. Uh, so he berates his students. We get to see early classes where he just sort of cusses at them and breaks their paintings and says what they're doing is completely worthless. And they have an estranged daughter that he has no interest in reconnecting with, even though uh, the Lena Olin character does and uh, wants to sort of reconnect with her, learn a lot of details, get to know their grandchild whom they've never really met. Uh, and over the course of the film, we just get to see her traverse his deteriorating mental state and her liberation, how she is finally kind of coming to control their situation mm -hmm. more than she ever has before, because now he's 
not capable of meeting his end of the bargain, as it were. Mm. And through all of this, we get to learn that she actually did want to stay warm with the family. And she really did want to be an artist. And she actually starts painting again and, you know, finding the life that she kind of put on hold Mm. to serve this great man. I feel like I've seen 800 versions of this. Right. Which doesn't mean, Uh, which which one could argue means that the situation is empathetic enough that it warrants Hmm. such kind of examination. You know, like there's a reason why it's not the same thing, but there's a reason why so many movies revolve around a love triangle because Hmm. love triangles still happen and they're dramatic and unpredictable. And And so I, I get it. But the problem is, is that when the formula like when you see, yield the yeah. same results over and over when, again, when it you gets see, a little... when you see the formula is when the yeah. problems start to occur. And yeah. when it feels like I you're feel just like, going through the motions. And I feel like that this film is just going through the motions. The, the, the actors are trying their best with kind of limited material and they're not coming to any kind of earth shattering conclusions. Mm. It's just sort of, it ends on a warm pat, pretty predictable sort of note where not a lot has been explored and the big confrontations were had in a kind of uh, unsatisfying casual sort of way. There isn't sort of the big screaming match where things are broken. It's just, Oh, I realized I was kind of mean and I'm sorry. It's like, well, well that's not satisfying. <laughs> I, well, I want not... not, not in the way you set it up. I want some, something to break before we yeah. get to that catharsis. Yeah. So it, it just sort of meanders a little bit and ends on a pretty unsatisfying way. Well, that's a that's a Rotten Tomatoes quote. <laughs> it just kind of meanders a little bit and then ends in a dissatisfying way. Cool. So on the critically acclaimed scale, which we might as well get to, I'm not sure we're gonna how we're gonna get beyond that. Uh, so we review films on the critically acclaimed scale. The critically acclaimed scale goes from C minus to C plus. C-minus is as low as you can get, unless you're the movie Cats. <laughs> but C-minus is below average. Everything from we simply don't recommend it to the worst thing ever. C is average. It's got good bits. It's got bad bits. It's okay. <laughs> and C-plus is above average. Yay! We liked it! Maybe it's amazing, but we at least really liked it. The artist's wife gets gets a, a C minus. Ah. It's not really worth recommending, unfortunately. That's a shame. That's a I mean, it's it's a high C minus. It's mm. not grievously wrong. It's just sort of blah. It, it's, you you wouldn't recommend anyone go out of their way to see it. No, okay. No, don't don't pay extra money for that one. All right, the swerve. The swerve is a C plus. I right. really really love this movie. It's incredibly harrowing and uh, it's incredibly emotionally honest, and I appreciate that. All right, and Enola Holmes. Enola Holmes is a C, an, an, okay. am, an ambitious film that, with a lot of uh, interesting things in it, really enervating visual style and a great lead character. But mm. yeah, there's too much of it. <laughs> it's got so much muchness. Mm. Um, you know, uh, when I started the podcast, I was leaning towards giving Enola Holmes a very low C plus, just for energy, just because I like the protagonist, just because there are things I like in it. But the more we talked about it, the more I realized. It's an incredibly high C. Like, mm. it's definitely, like, the good technically outweighs the bad, but none of it is ever so good mm. that I feel like it deserves an unqualified recommendation. So this is a qualified, there's definitely a demographic that's going to like this, but there's also a lot of people who are just going to find this, like, just, well, too much. Mm. Yeah. Too much muchness. <laughs> um, so it's a bit of a shame. And again, it's not such a wash for me that I wouldn't like to see a follow-up. 
maybe one that sort of ameliorates ameliorates what I'm looking for, like fixes a lot of the problems. Okay. okay. Um, all right. So that's the uh, new releases for the week. And that wow, we got through those in record time. <laughs> Everyone well, talk real slow for the rest of the podcast. So no, they, on they, they, our they, streaming club, they don't all have to be like two-hour marathons. No, I, but I, I got weird. a lot of films lined up for next week. We'll make okay. up for it. So. so on our streaming club, uh, we asked everyone to pick some classic films that were currently available on the Roku channel, of which there were quite a few. Um, I think this one was pretty close between, if memory serves, Gaslight and In the Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Gaslight won out, and Gaslight is a film from 1944. It stars Ingrid Bergman. Charles Boyer, Joseph Cotton, and Angela Lansbury in her very first film role. And she's already swinging for the fences. She was Oscar nominated for this movie. Mm -hmm. Ingrid Bergman won the Academy Award for Best Actress for this movie. It was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, And the term gaslight, as a verb, has entered the popular lexicon thanks to this film, which is based Mm -hmm. on a stage play and had been previously filmed in 1940. And when an American studio wanted to make this movie, they did so on the stipulation that all copies of the previous version of the film would be destroyed. I wish they did that more often. Just wipe them all out. Right? Like, we're doing an Amazon TV series based on Lord of the Rings. Get out of here, Peter Jackson's version. Yeah, just You're burn gone him. forever. Burn them to the ground. And uh, uh, apparently, I... apparently the only reason it survived, or one of the oh. only reasons it survived, is because some of the copies of the film that were like in storage were stored under the original name before it got changed to Gaslight. Oh, that's funny. So there is yeah, a previous is... version of this film that's out there. Studios will do that. Uh, I, I worked in a repertory theater. We did repertory midnight screenings a lot. And whenever there was a big uh, remake coming up or a big sequel coming up, uh, we thought it would be good business to uh, play the original play. Yeah. Book the original as a midnight show, like a few weeks or or a month ahead of time. And studios uh, rescind your ability to do that Mm -hmm. leading up to the film because they don't want to draw attention. Well, they also don't want I mean, I know they don't want to draw comparison as well. well, They don't draw comparison. They probably Mm -hmm. also don't want people to go. Ah, we don't need to see the new one. We saw the old one last week. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, bit of a shame. Yeah. Everybody says they make a remake. Well, the classic is still there. You can still watch it. That's true. But, uh, the conversation has now changed to include the remake. Unless the remake is a complete forgettable failure, Mm -hmm. like, uh, Poltergeist. Yeah. Nobody Uh, talks, nobody talks about the remake of Poltergeist. It's not even the worst thing ever. Mm. It's just not memorable at Mm. all. Is it? It's just gone. Uh, so un- unless that happens, uh, the remake is inserting itself into every single conversation about uh, classic. And it's can... often the case that the original version, now, especially now that everything's on streaming, they'll remove it from streaming, too. Yeah. This yeah, happens so, a lot. So, uh, so everybody says yeah. it's not replacing the original, but it kind of is in the a lot of ways. The studio wants it to. Yeah. Because they'll make more money off of the new version. Mm-hmm. This is why Disney used to have a big business re-releasing their classic films every few years. Yeah, the Vault. Yeah, they would. They would, and not just on home video, like in theaters. They mm. used to re-release classic Disney films in theaters pretty often through the '90s and even the early 2000s. And then eventually, Disney realized mm-hmm. they could make more money by remaking those movies, which they've been doing instead. Yeah. I. Uh... 
1986, and this was its last theatrical release, oh, yeah. I saw Song of the South. In theaters. In theaters. In 1986. Yep. With no, like, warnings or context, just here's Disney magic. Disney was still proud of it yeah. in 1986. 1986. I was, yeah. a, I was a kid, and I saw Song of the South in theaters. Uh, I missed that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, uh, but but remakes have been around. A lot of people are like, oh, was... everything's a remake now. Remakes have been around since literally the dawn of cinema. The first like narrative film, like the one that we could, it's not a feature, but the film that is typically hailed as the first like longer form narrative film, The Great Train Robbery, mm. which is about a bunch of cowboys pulling a train heist. And then the end or the beginning, depending on how they how they decided to cut it together at the venue. Uh, it there was a cowboy shooting at the audience, mm. like breaking the fourth wall, which was a big deal at the time. Uh, that movie was remade. This is like 1901, 1902. It was remade one year later. Yep. Remakes have always been a thing. There are tons of remakes in the silent era that just don't get talked about anymore. Yeah. Because yeah, well, many of them are lost now. But regardless, this is all... Mm. Hollywood has been sort of doubling back and mining itself for ideas for forever. Gaslight, however, is one of the films that is typically hailed as better than the original. I actually didn't have time to see the original. You wouldn't believe the week I had. I'll just leave it at that. So I didn't have time to see the original, but I did see this remake, and this remake is excellent. It is very, very creepy. It's beautifully acted. Ingrid Bergman totally earns an Oscar mm. for, the, for this film. Uh, Charles Boyer, who was typically seen as a dashing, sexy leading man. He was the the lead in Love Affair, uh, which is the movie that Unfair to Remember was based on, which was in turn the film Sleepless in Seattle was based on. Which wasn't that good a movie to start with. <laughs> Thank you, the critic. Um, but he was known as a dashing leading man. So in this film, uh, he seduces a young Ingrid Bergman, uh, who at the beginning of the film... Uh, her mother is mysteriously murdered in an unsolved case. Mm. Her mother is a famous opera singer. Mm. She has ambitions to be an opera singer. But she ends up falling in love with the pianist, played by Charles Boyer. Uh, and they end up moving into her mother's old house, which she has not been in since she was a child. And as soon as they start moving in, things start getting kind of weird. Like, she starts... Uh forgetting things mm -hmm. she becomes a bit of a kleptomaniac and but she doesn't remember stealing stuff yep and uh she, she starts suspecting the help mm. angela lansbury plays their maid mm. uh, who is very promiscuous and doesn't speak to ingrid bergman in a way that is considered proper for her station and this only can this only destabilizes ingrid yeah, bergman and further and gives her no sense of normalcy and uh, most notably, and where the film gets its title, at this, a certain time of night every night, she finds herself alone with her own thoughts, considering that she might be insane, and then the lights go down, and she hears weird scratching noises. Now, this is, uh, then, this, is uh, they were, this wasn't the time of electric lights. These were gas lights, mm -hmm. where people would just have gas floating into their house all the time. Mm. I've seen documentaries about just how incredibly bad this was. And people would just put a, put a light them every once in a while when it got dark. And it would be better. But uh, because all the lights in the house were dependent upon constantly flowing gas, if someone lit something else in another part of the room, gas elsewhere in the, in the house would dim. Mm. So when no one is around or when no one is supposed to be in another room, the, the lights would start dimming and every, there was no one there. 
Mm. And it causes her it causes her to question her sanity. And Ingrid Bergman is such a she was still pretty new when this movie came out, especially to American audiences. And she is such a powerful presence in most of the things she's in. In fact, uh, she won the Academy Award for Gaslight while she was about to start filming The Bells of St. Mary's, which is a great Christmas is, movie. It's the, the sequel to Going My Way. Yep. A, a great Christmas movie. She's wonderful in it. She plays a nun who is uh, trying to keep like this boys' school alive, and then Bing Crosby a comes bunch, in. A bunch and they, of rough-and-tumble boys. She doesn't know how to deal with them. There's and, a yeah. scene in which there's a kid who is getting beat up a lot. And initially, she's like trying to sort of, you know, eh, you know, you shouldn't fight or whatever. And then she realizes that, no, that's not the way the real world works. The kid's going to have to learn how to box. So she has to learn to box from reading books to <laughs> teach the kid how to box. And she's trying to teach the kid how to box. And it's one of the sweetest, funniest, most likable scenes any actor has ever been in. It's, it's watching it's Ingrid of, Bergman do it. One of the sweetest, most wonderful scenes where a nun gets punched in the face. It's so great. <laughs> Bells of St. Mary's is actually a really underrated Christmas movie. I wish more people watched it. But, um... It's, it's, there's a scene at Christmas. It's not it's, a Christmas... It's, it's not about... A Christmas throughout. It is about, the, it's about Christmas spirit. It is about... It, I think it works mm-hmm. as a Christmas movie. Not every Christmas movie needs to constantly be a Christmas right. in order to be a Christmas movie. But in any case, Ingrid Bergman is typically a very powerful presence in a lot of her movies, and seeing her fray is often absolutely alarming. And if you watch like this, or if you watch like the second half of Notorious, which is another film about mm. a, a potentially toxic marriage taking its toll on her, uh, or actually another example of this would be uh, Hitchcock's very underrated Under Capricorn, mm. uh, where she plays a woman who is also uh, suffering from severe mental health issues uh largely because of her relationship with her husband actually she did this a lot didn't she but uh <laughs> this is a horror story about a marriage and yeah. what we realize uh, and uh, frankly i always assumed this would be way more of a twist but mm. it feels like the movie telegraphs this pretty fast without really putting a button on yeah, it charles boyer is clearly up to no good yeah. like it's it's being broadcasted and we see what he's doing to her really early on yeah there's actually not a lot of tension. And I think George Cukor did the right thing in doing that. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise it's just a depressing film about a woman losing her mind. And, yeah. Which, yeah. So it's about a woman who thinks she's losing her mind, but it's actually a, about a very specific form of domestic abuse. And that is lying to someone and making them doubt their own perceptions of reality. Yeah. Uh, not and that's ma- where we get the term gaslighting. Yeah. So, uh, it's like, I, I, f- I found some evidence that you were cheating. No, you didn't find that. That that was just this thing. R- really? Because I thought it was, no, 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 I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah, you, you often do kind stuff of, like it's, this. Yeah, it's yeah, like, and yeah. oh, you always you always forget that. Or you, you always suspect me of this thing. And that's, mm. that's gaslighting. It's trying to psychologically manipulate somebody as a form of control and abuse. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people have experienced that kind of relationship. And uh, it, it's unfortunately very common and i think it was kind of in a weird way psychologically revolutionary for i think george cukor i haven't seen the 1940 version or and i haven't read the play but from 38 to 44 we had three versions of this story that are detailing something that i'm guessing was pretty rampant Mm. Uh, psychological abuse yeah this kind of psychological abuse and this one makes it you know it presents it in almost this hitchcockian way Mm -hmm. this is cukor in hitchcock mode uh 
which is and exciting to see. He's really good it's, at it. It's, it's very yeah, spooky and, 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 and atmospheric. It's, and... it's exciting and it feels like a thriller, but I think it's also uh, very, very smartly taking care of something that's very real. Mm. And uh, we have the outside viewer, and I had seen this movie before and I forgot who was in it, but Joseph Cotton is the one who kind of mm. catches wise to what's going on. Yeah, and he feels like the American in the cast. Like, you know, like, you know, like, in the, <laughs> like, like Eddie Izzard has a whole bit about this, like in The Great Escape, how like it's a bunch of British actors and also Steve McQueen is yeah. in it for the American audience or in that movie uh, Victory, which I think is also something that's called Escape to Victory, mm. uh, where it's about a bunch of uh, uh, British POWs uh, who play a football slash soccer match against mm. the Nazis while trying to engineer an escape. And also Sylvester Stallone is there as the American to help sell the movie to American audiences. It feels like that's what Joseph Cotton is doing because they don't even find an organic way to fit him in. He's an American cop working for Scotland Yard. They never who, even bother trying to explain who, that. Who, who Ingrid Bergman just walks past in one scene. Yeah. Like, and literally is just he's there. And is apparently grown up in England because he has talks about being there when he was a little boy. He's not. He's doing the Kevin Costner thing. He's not even trying <laughs> to have a British accent. He's good in it, but he's it's he's out of place in a strange way. We're, the Great Escape. Eddie Izzard's been on The Great Escape. We're going to disguise you as, as somebody who sells tickets on the bus, and we're going to disguise you as... as uh, somebody who works in a factory and Steve McQueen, you're going to be disguised as an American man in jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> They're trying to sneak out yeah. in, into Germany and they just have him in jeans and a t-shirt looking like Steve McQueen. Yeah. And this happens. That's, that's Joseph Cotton. It's who, happens who are a lot. You? You're an American man. Yeah. He's fine. I, I like Joseph Cotton. He's, uh, he's a wonderful I, actor. He's under he's underappreciated. I feel. I think because his his performances are really subdued. He never gets like a really showy role. He's typically playing even if he's like a lead role, like like in the, the third um, man, the, yeah. like the amazing like counterpoint to the awesome supporting cast. You look at him in something like. Uh, uh, like the third man is an ideal example of this. Citizen Kane is another mm. example of this. Um, he was it. Well, I guess Shadow of the Doubt's maybe one of his more showy roles, but even that's Teresa Wright's movie. Mm. Uh, Shadow of Doubt's an amazing movie. Actually, be a good double feature with Gaslight, where uh, Teresa Wright is a young woman who is totally in love with her uncle. She thinks her uncle is the coolest person who ever lived. He comes home to visit, and she slowly begins to realize that he might be a serial killer. <laughs> and what if he is? What do I do? What are my responsibilities? Would anyone believe me? And what if he finds out that I know? Hmm. Uh, Hitchcock often called it one of his best movies, and I'm inclined to agree. It's really, <laughs> really suspenseful and amazing, and Joseph Cotton is super creepy in it. Um, this isn't Joseph Cotton's movie. He basically plays the character... Um, there's to, a one, there's to a one connect, of, connect to the audience with reality. Well, he connects the yeah. audience with reality, which is really, really important, because if we're only in the relationship between Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, mm. we might start believing Charles Boyer. Yeah. That's the threat. Like the movie's reality is whatever it shows us. So whenever we cut back to Joseph Cotton, we know, okay, that's not what's happening. Charles Boyer is a bad person and he is abusive. And this isn't like something where we're going to turn it around and find out that Ingrid Bergman really is losing her mind. That's not a thing. Um, but there's this, there's this horror character that I don't know if there's a name for. Um, they're the character in the horror movie who exists to eventually make their way into the action in the third act. Hmm. You may recall uh, uh, Scatman Crothers in The Shining, where he okay. does he he yeah okay he teaches the kid what The Shining is at the beginning, but then he's gone. But we keep cutting back to him trying to get his back to the Overlook Hotel, and ultimately he doesn't even do that much. He just 
brought well, them a he, means of transportation. Yeah. That was his big to do. Well, or in, there's another, in terms of plot, but yeah. yeah. Or in the stepfather, there's a guy who is on Deterio Quinn as a serial killing uh, man who marries into families and kills them when they disappoint his Reagan uh, era of like conservative values. There's a guy who is on the hunt for Terry O'Quinn and he makes it all the way there and he is not the hero of the day. He is there to bring something useful for the actual heroes to use later. Richard Farnsworth in Misery is another one of these. Oh, there you go. Joseph Cotton does a little well, bit more uh, than that, but we're basically just cutting to him because we know at the end of the movie he will have been useful. Well, this is a trope from noir and detective stories, mm. how we follow... The, in fact, we saw this uh, in uh, another streaming club uh, entry, mm, Green for one? Danger. Oh, yeah. Where it, it wasn't about the detective until the third act, and the detective yeah. came in to sort of un yeah. un everything a little bit. That was about the second half, more important. Oh, well, I suppose for, so. For the sake but, of accuracy, but, but yeah. Yeah, the, the detective... It, it wasn't the detective story. It was yeah. about the death and the people surrounding the death for a good chunk of the film. Yeah. And then the, then the detective came He's in. He's there for and, plot and, reasons. Cary Grant yeah. Notorious is the same way. It's Ingrid Bergman's film. Cary Grant Mm. is there at the beginning to set everything up and at the end to wrap it up. Yeah. 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 So uh, it's, I think it's a little bit more of a a film noir Mm. thing that you're tapping into that's sort of leaked over into horror films, which take a lot from detective fiction. They take a lot from Mm. film noir as well. Mm. There's a certain cynicism about society. And this Gaslight does feel like a film noir relationship drama, Mm. Um, except there are actually... There is actually one decent person. She's victimized over the course of the film, and I guess Joseph Cotton's a bit more heroic. Okay, it's got mm. noir elements. I think it's probably yeah, more yeah. reasonable to say. Um, but this is this is a horror story about a marriage, mm. and it's interesting to see how, you know, in the sort of the the Hayes Code era, when movies were not permitted to show certain ugly parts of humanity mm. too vividly. That by divorce being one of them, divorce being mm. one of them, a lot of uh, uh, you know, relationship issues being one of them. Um, by heightening this and treating it like a gothic story, by treating it like a horror story in a lot of ways, they're able to get away with a lot more intensity and a lot really exploring a lot more anxiety of what it's like to be in a loveless, abusive marriage, mm. and even though there's there's a lot of like contrivance here like there's a whole plot about why Charles Boyer is doing this and it's fine it justifies it but it's not why we're here well it, we're, it, we're it, here well, for the yeah, for like we understand who he is and we want to see uh how how his story will end and if he'll get his come up ends yeah we definitely want him to get his and i loved the ending oh yeah, yeah look, and, and, ingrid bergman's like second to last scene is like wow it's mm. so damn good um this movie is fantastic. This movie is absolutely excellent. Angela Lansbury is amazing in this movie. Uh, I was reading a story about the production where um, she, even though she was, I think, I think you said she was like 21, 22. She was 22 when she made this movie. Uh, I guess while she was making the movie, she still was like, uh, she still had like kind of like a guardian or like someone watching over on the set because she was like a young actor and, uh, apparently she wasn't allowed there's one scene in the movie where she has to smoke okay. and she wasn't allowed to do that until her birthday <laughs> so they okay. waited to film that scene and they had a little birthday party and then they shot the scene where she smokes oh that's funny uh, she plays uh, the the maid uh, who is also a very promiscuous young woman who flirts with Charles Boyer and is sleeping with all of the uh, various local policemen mm. which will be important later um, she's so good <laughs> She's so good, like, right off the bat. Like, And it's weird because 
she's one of those actors who I think a lot of people don't realize was ever young because <laughs> she was an older woman for so many decades in movies. She even when she was younger, she was playing like moms and stuff. Manchurian no, Candidate's only like fifteen years after this movie. She would have been like in her early thirties, and she's playing like the lead twenty-somethings mother who, in that and, film. And rather famously, I think she was like two years older than the actor playing her son. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's weird. Given the relationship between the two of them, though, that like is actually kind of canny casting in well, that movie. It, it adds to the creepy factor. Don't get me wrong, but there's this weird thing where like she just. Ended up, even though here she's she's got a very youthful spirit and she's absolutely perfect in this movie, she quickly acquired this like certain stage presence and dignity that just made her come across as not a young person. Yeah, you know, like like um, Richard Dreyfus rarely read as like eighteen. Like even when he was young, he still felt like he was at least in his thirties, like that mm. kind of thing. It's, um, so it's interesting to see her when she got started, to see just how amazing she was right out the gate. Um, and, um, Charles and Boyer she... is as creepy as any villain of the era. Boy, is he, oh, boy, yeah. is he disturbing yeah, yeah. as hell. Ooh, uh, well, shivers and, down the and, spine. And has that, that wonderful and sadly all too recognizable condescending boyfriend mm-hmm. attitude. Like, like you, you know, he's up to no good. You just want to slap the bastard. You really do. Mm. Yeah. He's no, he's, he's so unbelievably terrible. And, oh, <laughs> but, but, well, the, but, but I think, I think but in, I in think, a way that makes him an appealing movie villain. I mean, you know? yeah, I mean like you, cause because you want to see him slip up and you see little moments where the facade starts to fail and he has to try even more ridiculous lies to keep Ingrid Bergman mm. on her toes. Like the first, the first time the movie is like completely, there's no deniability whatsoever that Charles Boyer is gaslighting her. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's the title, but like there's for, for the rest of it, we've never actually seen him like hide the things that are, that have gone missing or anything like that. There's, there's a, s- some plausible deniability, There's some plausible deniability. Maybe this is where the twist is going. Uh, but early in the film, when they move into the house for the first time, uh, Ingrid Bergman finds a letter addressed to her mother. And Charles Boyer apparently thinks this is something very detrimental to him. Yeah. So he snatches it away from her. And then later on, when she brings it up again, he says, and this is the first time the audience has seen something on camera, so we know this is a lie. There was no letter. Mm. You were waving nothing in front of me, and it scared the hell out of me to see you like that. And the audience is going, oh, okay, okay, all right. I came in late. I I get it now. I see what's going on. Mm. Everything this guy does is horrible. Every this, <laughs> this guy is an absolute monster. And just what a what an incredible freight performance from Ingrid Bergman. What an incredible performance from Charles Boyer, Angela Lansbury. Joseph Cotton is always reliable, but he doesn't get like the showy scenes. Mm-hmm. He's just good. Um, gorgeously photographed. I love the way that the, all the design and the camera work inside the house, as it becomes more and more oppressive to Ingrid Bergman and how cluttered it feels yeah, and how yeah. they start like, you know, adding more things to the foreground just so that she feels more trapped. And Ooh, it's so, oof. maybe I, I might be a sucker for movies about like sort of social isolation right now, given, you know, 2020. Uh, but really got under my skin. So I'm really glad I saw this movie. This movie is absolutely fantastic. And um, I do hope people see it. The term gaslighting has 
it still has like an official definition. It is a form of psychological abuse. Lately, people have started using it a little wrong, a little cavalier fashion. Yeah. It's not not just when someone's lying to you. That's that's yeah. lying. The, the, uh, it's the thing that I think people are like are trying to use it as, at least in the political climate, mm. is when someone tells you that everything is fine when we all know that it's not, or when something tells you that everything is normal when we all know that it's not. Mm. Because the more the people like in charge say, it's totally fine that all this corruption is going on. This mm. isn't even worth investigating. And then they don't, the more it becomes normal. Mm. And the more people are willing to just accept it. That's not technically gaslighting, right. but it's close enough. And I'm not going to be too too picky about it. Like I don't think we have a better term for that other than lying. Um <laughs> So I get it. Maybe no, we need to... normalizing your crime. Yeah, maybe we will. You know, if a jerk's doing it, maybe call it ass lighting. I don't know. <laughs> it's like gaslighting. It's ass lighting. No, that that that's for my photo shoots. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was right there. I yeah, no, 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 no. I'm, now I'm imagining National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon One, where Emilio Estevez like <laughs> leaves the bed after having sex with Kathy Ireland, and, it's like his, and his butt. He's walking naked, and like his butt is like extra shiny for some reason and he's and walking past like a, a window and there's a beam of moonlight coming yeah. in through the window like, don't mind me this is just my butt in the moonlight walk <laughs> he says where are you going nowhere it's my, and he says it's unmotivated it's an unmotivated butt in the moonlight walk <laughs> that movie is very funny it is <laughs> I, I rewatched it recently it mostly holds up it's actually really mm. quite funny <laughs> tim curry plays a girl scout it's great <laughs> uh, with a beard um the den mother says we're not meeting our quota. Yeah. <laughs> then he kills the guy. Uh, it's great. Uh, so anyway, gas. I'm glad we got the loaded weapon from Gaslight. From Gaslight. <laughs> Are we the only podcast to ever do that? I think maybe. Yeah, George Cukor's Gaslight is quite a good film. Uh, rightfully hailed as a classic. Um, yeah. I'm, I had seen it before. I'm glad to revisit it. Okay. Uh, this, one was all, this one was my pick, obviously. Yeah. If, uh, might be a little triggering for people who have gone through relationships oh, like that. I yeah. think most people have in one way or another, or at least uh, been, or at least been like in proximity to it. Yeah, it's yeah. seen it in another, uh, or somebody will gaslight you on one occasion, mm-hmm. and like may, maybe even by accident. But you understand it, and it make, makes you feel it's horrible. Wrong. Yeah, it's, it's wrong. Uh, I'm glad it was so well codified in a movie from the 1940s. Yeah. And that it, and that, and it's that still movie really the, relevant. Yeah. yeah, not that it doesn't only feel relevant; it still feels just as horrifying. Yeah, and it's because the actors are really, really selling it. Um, so anyway, uh, that is currently available, and actually, the original 1940 version is currently available on the Roku channel as well. Uh, but remember when I said I was having trouble with my streaming apps? That was one of them. Ah, so I couldn't. It. I was going to see. I made the time. Wasn't working. Having trouble no, this week. I don't, yeah, nothing is going right this week. So I apologize for that. Oh, and you know what? Angela Lansbury. I was just looking her up. Angela Lansbury's uh, 95th birthday is coming up. Wow. So just gonna on, on October 16th, Angela Lansbury will turn 95. So happy birthday, yeah. Angela. Angela Lansbury. Uh, this again. This was her first movie, and apparently, when she got the role, she was working at a department store that I don't think exists anymore. But we used to have several of them in Southern California called Bullocks. Oh, yeah. B-U-L-L-O-C-K, apostrophe S. Uh, Bullock's was the department store in my hometown in Pasadena, the big one. 
Bullock's was a gorgeous department store. One of those ones that took everything really seriously. Like they had a big tea room, Ooh. you know, and they had like a nice old fashioned barber in there. And they decked it <laughs> so out like real nice for Christmas. Store like, yeah, it was like okay. it was like an old fashioned like Hallmark wishes <laughs> it could get access to a Bullock's when I was a kid. It was so damn good. Apparently, she 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 was leaving Bullock's and she turned in her notice. And her boss said, "Oh well, uh, you know you're you're quite good at your job. I could, maybe I could match your salary." And she's just like, "I'm making five hundred dollars a week making a movie." He's like, "And on your way you go, because <laughs> we are not paying you that to sell. I don't know watches. I don't know whatever she sold. I don't know what she sold, but um, yeah, <laughs> just thought that was hilarious. Whatever it was, I wish I could have run into her at the department store just so I could have met a very young Angela Lansbury. Mm-hmm. Yes, here's money for a watch. I know." You're going <laughs> to write some murder. You wrote. She did so much more than murder. She wrote. She also did uh, Mrs. Eris goes to Paris. Really? Yes. What the hell is that? That was a TV movie I really liked as a kid. <laughs> okay. She, she played like a like a, I can't remember what she was. I think she was like a housekeeper. Okay. And uh, you know she worked at housekeeper her whole life. She's an older woman, and she had saved up her whole life. All she wanted was a really fancy French dress. And she saved up all the money that she needed, and she went to Paris for the weekend, mm-hmm. and she bought the dress. And she, they said, okay, good, so now we just need to do your sizing. And she says, oh, I'm a, I'm a size four. And they're like, no, this is a fancy Paris-type dress. This takes, like, days. And she's like, I didn't budget for a trip for days. Mm-hmm. This will make me destitute. And it's all about her, like, trying to, like make things work in Paris and, like, keep her job and stuff so she can get this dress. It's adorable. And it's where I got one of my most common turns of phrase. Oh, uh, uh, do, do share. Sir. It's uh, uh, what's what's the word? Um, well, oh, what I is? Tell you. No, I'm now, now I'm blanking on it. How am I doing this? Um, pusillanimous. Y- no, <laughs> hang on, hang on. It's uh, I'll be with you in two shakes of a duck's whisker. Okay, I say that a lot. <laughs> to date, no one has ever caught where that's from. You know, like when you quote a movie and like ah. I saw that. Like, no, no one's ever done that with Mrs. Eris goes to Paris. But it's a cute flick, and if you ever able to track it down, it's worth it's worth watching. Um, anyway, that's it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Next time on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, uh, we asked our patrons to vote for horror movies on Tubi. We love Tubi. Now, to, to continue the analogy from the start of the episode, <laughs> where uh, streaming services are video stores, mm-hmm. Tubi is that really sketchy video store in like mm-hmm. Oxnard, California, where like Blockbuster's ruling the strip mall, but you yeah. go off to this little one that's like a few miles away and it's run by some like metal guys who are clearly like still drunk from the night before. Like they're mm-hmm. not, they're not even hung over yet. And they've clearly like and, uh, ordered their inventory based on how cool the VHS covers look and yeah, not so based on what's actually popular. They have a lot of the popular new releases right at the front, but you go to their horror section, everything's stacked sideways and is really weird. And some of it looks really shitty, but you know that they yeah. just overdone it on the horror section yeah so they got tons of cool yeah. horror sci-fi action genre stuff but like from like the 60s 70s and 80s and 90s the stuff that like netflix doesn't give a shit about anymore so <laughs> along with some classics like the Scream yeah. movies are on there yeah, and, they and have the some new texas stuff. chainsaw yeah there's there's like there's legit some classics but what i tubi. love about them is when you're looking on tubi and like let's say you put in just you click on horror mm. usually on like a streaming service They'll put the newer or more 
famous stuff at the top of the page. Uh-huh. Tubi does not do that. Nope. <laughs> Tubi will put, it's not even in alphabetical order. It's just a random assortment of titles. And I will sometimes scroll down hundreds of titles and then see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> like just sort of nestles in the middle yeah. of nowhere in a bunch of 60s movies I've never heard of. I love that shit. Yeah. So we're looking on Tubi and we picked a whole bunch of films that like people have barely heard of or forgotten sequels. Uh, but Whitney also put in Train to Busan. So we'll be doing yes. that because I, everyone I, voted for that. I haven't seen Train to Busan. I know uh, recency bias usually yeah. rules these polls and that happened again this time. Sure did. But it'll give me a chance to catch up on Train to Busan. Yep. And uh, I, I've, I've seen it, but I, I will get a chance to rewatch it. And won't that be nice? So uh, we'll be reviewing that on next week's Streaming Club. We'll also be reviewing a ton of new movies, Mm -hmm. which I did not write down. So we'll find out next week what they are. One of them is called Vampires vs. the Bronx. I have a screener lined up for that one. So tune in. I'm going to need to get your screener of that. (laughs) That sounds amazing. (laughs) I can't wait. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, so that's uh, Critically Acclaimed. Of course, you can vote for new episodes. uh, Sorry, for, for movies to review on the Streaming Club. Every single week at our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We also have a ton of exclusive content up there. At every single tier, you're going to get a giant back catalog of exclusive podcasts about everything from Star Trek to Firefly to TV movies to Disney movies to Oscar nominated best pictures. Uh, Ton, 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 ton of stuff. Um, I shudder to think how many hours we probably put into that patreon (laughs) already in addition to the stuff we also do here for free at the critically acclaimed network of course we have a ton of other podcasts here we've got mail episode zero which is coming back uh canceled too soon and the like so thank you everybody for subscribing thank you everybody who is a patron without whom this would not be possible we wouldn't be able to do this right Mm. now this would no way could we do it so Thank you to all of our patrons. If you want to write in to us, we might read your letter on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. The email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Dibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. And that is it for us. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?